Over the next month, members of fellowship will have the opportunity to nominate new elders to the elder board. In our church governance structure, the elder board is made up of godly men who make critical and significant decisions on behalf of our body. We are not a church with elders. We are a church led by elders. The nomination and recognition process are very important to the health of our church family. Here is what we are asking members of fellowship to do. First, please pray for the elder nomination process and discern whether you should nominate someone to the office of elder. Second, if you do have a nomination, please visit fellowshipnwa.org forward slash elder nomination and complete the online form. Please read the accompanying document entitled Qualifications of an Elder before making your nomination. If you prefer a paper nomination form, you may pick up one at the information desk in the worship center foyer at each campus. The nomination form will be attached to the qualifications of an elder document. Please mail paper nominations to the church office on the Rogers campus to the attention of the elders. The deadline for making a nomination is December 11th. Please pray for your elders as we initiate the process of recognizing new elders. Finally, we thank Scott Thompson and Roger Hill for their years of faithful service as elders. They have represented you and the Lord well during their tenure. When you see them, please thank these gentlemen for their faithful service. On another note, a few of the buildings on our Rogers campus need some attention. The Family Center was completed in 1991. The Worship Center and Foyer were completed in 1999. That's a quarter of a century. The elders have approved moving forward with much needed improvements to those buildings. The cost is estimated to be approximately $4.5 million. We don't want to go into debt for this project and we have proven on initiatives of much larger scale that we can get this done if all our congregations work together. My wife Denise and I will be setting up monthly recurring gifts to do our part and I hope you will too. No gift is too large or too small. And remember, it's not about equal giving, but equal sacrifice. On the giving page of our website, you will find capital improvements. You can make a contribution there or set up recurring gifts. We already have $1.3 million in donations, so we are well on our way. God continues to do great things through Fellowship Bible Church of Northwest Arkansas. Thank you for playing an active role in this great ministry. God bless you, everyone. Hey, everyone. Good morning, everybody. That was a weak showing on the student side. I know, students, come on. Good morning, students. Now I sound like a teacher. <laughs> I won't do that again to y'all. Uh, hey, good morning, we're happy to be here. Rochelle and I um, are two, uh, two of the, the six who get to serve in FSM with our, our junior high and high schoolers, and we, uh, we love Sunday mornings like this where we get to all worship together as a big church family. Um, hey, one thing I'm really, really thankful for around here is healthy and accountable leadership all the way from the youngest student who may be serving in like a toddler's two class to the elder board, our, our church governance system of, of healthy men uh, engaged in a relationship who wanna lead, um, lead our church. And so y'all just watched the video for that whole process. Did you watch the video, Rochelle? 
Yeah, I watched the video. That's good. Uh, Outlining how we do elder nomination and why it's important. And so we just ask that you you pray and participate um, within all of that this elder season um, as we're we're thinking through some men to join the elder board um, for our governance. Um, I love First Sundays. If you're new here, welcome. We have been, for the last year and a half-ish, I believe, every first Sunday, we've been inviting our 7th, 8th, ninth through 12th graders into this room. And something that I've, I think I've shared a couple of times, maybe, or maybe just once, but it continues to, to kind of inspire me, is the fact that we're, we're watching our students go from saying FSM or Fellowship Student Ministries is their church to saying Fellowship Bentonville is their church. And now you may think, oh, that's just a name change or it's a, it's a word difference, but I actually think it's something a little bit deeper. I think, I think we're beginning to catch vision around here that it's not just about a healthy student ministry or a healthy children's ministry or a healthy special needs and disabilities ministry or a healthy community ministry. I think we're beginning to see, and I'm seeing at the high school level, uh, that a, a healthy church is not about just the siloed offshoot things that we do as they're thriving, but it's about the whole and the whole body um, as God is blessing it to thrive. And so we just love getting to worship on first Sundays together. We love getting to be a part of what happens here in this room. And uh, one thing that I get excited about, and uh, we get to experience it actually this morning, kind of mid-service, is, is some student baptisms. We actually... We actually don't have a baptismal in FSM, and we've done that intentionally as we were kind of designing what that space would be like before Bentonville launched. We, we saw the value of getting to celebrate baptisms in here in front of the whole church body rather than just by ourselves and just the student body um, as something that's really beneficial to the benefit and blessing of the church. And so I'm excited as we get to watch some students in the middle of the service um, proclaim their life change and, and the grace and love that has changed their, their life forever because God's great mercy um, is, is so amazing. And so, yeah, I'm excited too. It's going to be great. Um, but we get to see this kind of life change happen across all cell groups. And we as staff get the really fun and cool opportunity to get to hop around to different cell groups each week. And so a few weeks ago, I was at the 11th grade girls cell group Hi, 11th grade girls. Yeah, they're sitting over there. So we were discussing Philippians 2, and we were studying the humility of Christ. And one of their leaders asked this wonderful question. And she said, hey, you know, Jesus became obedient to even death on a cross. So how can we, as followers of Jesus, be obedient to God's word in our everyday lives? I mean, like, what a great question, right? And so as we begin to go around the circle, the girls start to share And they start to say things like, you know, following Jesus is hard and I struggle sometimes and I mess up or I believe this lie. And as we started to make our way around the circle, one really brave girl stepped out in vulnerability unashamedly and she said, hey, you know what? What if we actually named the thing? Like, what if we actually named the specific sin struggle, the specific lie that we're believing because there's so much power when we confess together? And she said, I'll go first. And so she did. And I sat there and I watched as these 16 and 17-year-old girls began to bring to the light these specific sin struggles and lies that they had been battling. And as one shared, it spurred the next one just to share. And in community, they got to take another step into freedom with Christ that day. And it was beautiful. And, And so I sat there with tears in my eyes As I watch these girls truly believe James 5.16 when it talks about 
You know, when we confess together and when we pray for one another, that's what actually leads to healing. And so we just as a group got to witness the life change that can only happen through the blood of Jesus, and it was beautiful. And we see this happening all the time in cell groups, and it's wonderful. It's a joy to watch. It's a joy to watch students step into new life with Jesus, adults step into new life with Jesus, uh, little kids step into new life with Jesus. It is just such a blessing um, to see that happen around here. And so if y'all will, um, go ahead and bow your heads, and, and let, me, let me pray for us to get this morning really kicked off. God, we love you. Teach us to love you more. Teach us to believe you um, in the life that you're inviting us into. Teach us to worship you and behold you and follow your son as we learn uh, to submit our lives into the life that you have for us. And um, I just make yourself more known to us as we learn to follow you today um, as a family, as a church that you love. Um, as men and women who are just trying to figure out what it looks like to submit their lives and their worship and their time to you. Our Father, it's your name we pray. Amen. Hey, would you stand with us as we sing in Christ alone? In Christ alone. Found, He is my life, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace. When fears are still, when striving cease. My all in all, here in the love of Christ, I stand.
the power of Christ I'll stand
Father, let us be confident in that truth that only you to satisfy us. Let us rest in that. Let us rest in your love. And in your name we pray. Amen. If you will turn to me, I mean, turn to me and listen to Philippians 3, verses 17 through 4, verse 1. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. Just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For, I have, for as I have often told you before, and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things, while our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. Amen. You may be seated. I want to personally thank Kyle Plunkett, wherever you're at, for choosing the tallest student in FSM to read scripture today. Just a boost of confidence as I get started up here, but glad to get to open God's word uh, with you. We are in Philippians. Uh, we'll be in chapter three, but want to start with a quick uh, overview of kind of uh, where we've been. So a couple of weeks ago, brought up this upside down bell curve to try and represent the life that, that Christ uh, has lived so that we can kind of see it visually. So just as a reminder, like he has always been God. That's where he began from the beginning of time. Um, and he chose to enter into our world, uh, to become human, to become like a servant, to humble himself to the point of death. And we saw that's where he atoned for our sins, but did not stay in the grave by the power of God, rose from the dead, and scripture taught us in Philippians 2 that he has been highly exalted and given the name above all names, and that is where he resides currently as we await him. Uh, what we saw of our role in uh, Philippians chapter 2 was that we are called to this left side, this downward curve, to live in humility, to live in unity uh, with others, uh, to lay our lives down on a consistent basis, to have that same mindset that Jesus had. What we didn't see in chapter two, but we now have kind of seen uh, throughout chapter three, is what happens to our spiritual lives? So if this is what we're called to do physically, to, to humbly serve, what happens spiritually? Well, at the same time this is happening, we are also being renewed spiritually. So the more that we walk with Jesus, the more we read of his ways, the more we, we follow him, the more like him uh, we become, um, and we get to experience this, this spiritual growth process. And so we call this process the salvation process. Uh, the doctrine of salvation is called soteriology. And we've kind of looked at two of the three major aspects of it so far already. So two weeks ago, we covered justification. Uh, this is where we take what Christ has done on the cross, his atoning sacrifice for us. And when our faith is put in him, uh, we get to receive um, salvation through him, that he covers our guilt on our behalf. And so that's what happens at justification. But then we, that's just the beginning. We enter into this sanctification growth process where we get to live on this earth and actually 
get to know Jesus, get to follow him, get to, to be his ambassador here on this earth. So if you've chosen to follow Jesus, this is the process that you and I are in today. This week, we get a glimpse into kind of this end process of salvation. Uh, we call it glorification. And it's just a glimpse today, but this is where we will get to experience the fullness of who we were created to be, to live in perfection, in the presence of God um, with our creator, to be uh, perfect again, and to actually get to experience his glory in a way, this glorification process. Now, if you hear all this and you think, well, man, how many times are we gonna you know, teach this cycle that you know, Jesus died for me, so I put my faith in him, we're called to live for him, and there's hope of something better coming. I hope that does not bore you because I wanna remind you, you and I never outgrow the gospel, ever. Not only is this the thing that roots our eternity, but it roots everything about us today. So yes, here at Fellowship, we're gonna teach these things a lot, okay? In fact, maybe the more spiritually mature you are, the more you need this this morning to have this reframe of what is glorification? What are we, what are we actually living for? Like, what is this future hope? So we're gonna pick up chapter three, Verse 17, as Paul moves into this part of the text, he says something that, you know, I contend to be pessimistic. So the pessimistic side of me hears him say this and thinks, is that a bit prideful? He says, join together in following my example, okay? Now, Paul is constantly pointing us to Jesus, but a couple of times in his letters, he'll actually say like, hey, follow me or follow me as I follow Christ. So what do we do with this? Well, as I was studying this this week, I was reminded of one of the greatest adventures I've ever been on in my life. Uh, so this is a picture from 2021. It was my last trip with our high school ministry uh, to Timberline in Colorado, and I love adventure. I love outdoors, and so every year we would go on a whitewater uh, rafting trip uh, on this trip, and every time before I would leave, my wife would look at me and be like, hey, make sure you work hard on this work trip that you're going on, and I'm like, babe, laying my life down for the sake of the gospel, like... This is important work that we're doing here. Uh, you can see some Bentonville folks. We got Kyle Plunkett, Brandon Still, Eric Bailey uh, above me. Uh, one of my friends and teammates saw this picture and she said, it looks like you came back from the future to raft with yourself and I can't unsee it. And Eric Bailey, I'm grateful for that. I wanna be like you one day. Um, but every year I would go on this and would think this is the greatest thing in the world. Class two, class three rapids. And I would do it year after year. And I thought it was the greatest thing until I went riverboarding. There's this river in Missoula, Montana, okay? And it has a special water rock system in the Alberton Gorge that allows you to do class two rapids on a boogie board. I'm telling you, if you're ever in southern Montana, it's worth, it's worth it, go. Um, but we roll up to this place and meet a guy named Mike and his 13-year-old son, and they were like, hey, we're gonna be your guides. And I'm from Arkansas, so I'm used to things being a little low-key, maybe not put together, but this was a whole new level. Like, there's no online check-in, there's this like a paper that we sign, a shed that we change in. The boogie boards have clearly been destroyed by rocks. And so, I'm starting to feel it, but I'll just go ahead and tell you, it was the coolest thing ever. Being like dropped into class two rapids, fully submerged, popping up, just big smiles, kicking. And so, Mike gets us our gear, before I knew all of that that was coming, he gets us our gear, and I'll never forget what he said when we got started. We get in the water, there's this massive gorge on both sides of us that we're about to float through. You can hear the first set of rapids. And so we're in the water and he's looking at us. This is me, my wife, my brother-in-law and sister-in-law. 
He says, all right, we're gonna go in these first rapids and here's what I want you to do. I want you to make sure you stay on the left side and then as soon as you drop in, I want you to kick 20 yards to the right. And I'm like, what's 20 yards in moving whitewater? Like, how am I supposed to know this? And he says, because there's a boulder there and once you get around it, you gotta go as far back left as you can. And so like, I'm looking at my wife going, what have we got, it's too late. We're in the water, what have we gotten ourselves into? And I will never forget what he said next. He said, if you forget any of this at any time, just follow me. I'd never heard more comforting words in my life. I kept my face as close to that man's backside as I could for like two hours. I'm going to do everything that you do, emulate every move, because in that moment, I needed someone who had done this before. I needed someone who knew where we need to kick, not just telling me, but he knew. And he knew when we could rest and chill out for a little bit. He knew where the boulders were. He knew where the dangers were. And that's how I look at Paul. Like when you think about the life of Paul, the, what's highlighted in the red is his last, his kind of final trip uh, through prison, but you can see lightly in the gray there, he's gone all over to preach the gospel of Jesus. There's not much he hasn't encountered. Types of people, types of sin, persecution, celebration, church planning, church drama, fake gods, legalists, Pharisees, royal authorities, prison. And not only is he on this path, but the whole time he's been running that bell curve too of submitting himself to the way of Jesus, humbly following him, and his spirit is being renewed every single day. So he's writing saying, hey, Philippians and us, if you're having trouble actualizing this theology about Jesus and life that I'm teaching you, follow me, right? I've I've walked it. Not that I'm perfect. He says that multiple times. Not perfect, but Christ has done a work in me. So he says, don't forget about the others around you too, that there's a a lot of people around you. Keep your eyes on those who live as we do. He points to others, and I'm reminded of the truth and the beauty of this as I look at those around me, the Abel and Sarah Schaefer's in my life, the Mark and Lisa Schatzmans, Dick and Connie Nervigs, Beth Kenyon, Angie Simmerman, Stephanie, like all these people that I get to work with and watch as they follow Jesus, they are a gift to me in my personal walk. And I highlight that at the beginning just to remind us that this isn't just a passage about glorification, about something happening in the future. This is a passage about community and discipleship as Paul invites people to follow Jesus with him. And so adults, we have a massive group of students over here, right? And they lead us in so many ways, but don't forget, they're watching us. Not not just in here, but like out there. They're watching the way we do our jobs and the way we give sacrificially of our time or treat our spouses or confess our sin. Like they see it. Students, remember, y'all are leading a lot with our kids. You're leading my kids, and we all know they need help, okay? And they're watching you in everything that you do. The only way that we can confidently say, hey, imitate me, is if we are imitating Christ. That's it. It's the only way that those words will ring true. And in order to more clearly see what Christ has called us to, Paul contrasts this way of living with the world around him. And he brings up this phrase that some are living as enemies of the cross of Christ. What is this, right? These are people who are living in a contrasting way to who Jesus is and what he's done. When you read this, you probably have an image of something, a people, a person that comes to mind. I want you to to hold on to that uh, for a minute. What does an enemy of Jesus actually look like? How do they act? Well, Paul's gonna give us a little bit of glimpse into that. And he starts by saying that these people, their destiny, their end is destruction. So he's starting to shift his vision to what happens after this world. That's why we're getting into glorification. And he says there are a group of people 
that will receive this second death. And it would divert us too much this morning to do a full theology on heaven and hell and rapture and tribulation and millennial kingdom and all those things. But it's enough to declare here what Paul declares, that there's a life that many will live that will lead to ultimate separation from God. And he's gonna go on to kind of describe what that looks like, but in an eternal sense, that's gonna be people who reject the work of Christ on the cross, right? Reject him as savior of their lives. But I think in a worldly sense, something that we can all slip into on a daily basis is the rejection of Jesus as Lord, right? In any given moment, any of us can slip into the things that we're gonna see Paul talk about. And so what are these identifiers of enemies of the cross? What says that their God is their stomach. ESV, I think, says it's their belly. Uh, Every human worships a God of some type. All of us do, okay, whether you believe it or not. And it seems that the insinuation here is less that their God is their, like, actual stomach, meaning that they're worshiping food, but that their worship is of appetite in general, okay? Someone driven and led by their own desires. It's kind of that mindset of, I want, therefore I will. There's no authority outside of personal desires and pleasure. I've seen this creep into my life in many different ways. I've seen it with food and with alcohol. I've seen it with, with sexual sin, lustful desires. I've seen it with uh, this, this desire for power and control. And at some point for us, even as followers of, of Jesus, we have to be careful. There's a shift in the ladder of authority where our desires are no longer subject to our minds, but they become the things that actually drive us in the decisions that we make. Paul does not, and I think it's intentional, name specific sins here because I think it'd be too easy for readers to be like, well, that doesn't apply to me, so clearly he's talking about someone else. This temptation of allowing our pleasures to drive us is a real temptation for all of us. I will never forget sitting down with a mature believer in a men's group a couple of years ago. I think even the more mature believers, like we have to remember that sin creeps just below the surface. And so I asked him, I was like, hey, this is, this is my struggle, you know, lust, sexual sin. Like, at what age did you conquer that? Like, at what age did the desire to lust go away? He was in his early 70s. And he looked at me and he said, it must be sometime after 73. <laughs> and I didn't know whether to be encouraged or, but no, Seriously, I was encouraged because I'm like, that is a man of God who's saying like, I'm always gonna have to battle against this and always put my eyes on Jesus. Gonna have to. What that reminds us is that singles and and marrieds, we need to be developing community of like-minded men and women where we can confess things and we can bring things to the surface. Husbands and wives, the same thing there. Developing such an intimate community with your spouse where you ask the hard questions, even if you're scared because you know what the answer will be. Students, that 11th grade cell group story that Rochelle shared, I know that's happening all over. Continue to see parents and cell leaders and other cell students as a place to share these things because a wound kept in secret cannot be treated. But God is faithful to heal. And that is the battle against this desire to be led by our stomachs. So Paul has this lens where he's never been captivated by his own flesh since he started following Jesus. He's always looking to something eternal, and it's through that lens that he calls out this second identifier. He says that their glory is in their shame. So not only are they participating in the ways of the world that lead to death and destruction, but they're boasting about it. And you know, the first step is letting the desires kind of be our steering wheel. 
The second step is then justifying the decisions that we make and trying to find some semblance of, of truth of like, oh, well, here's the reason why I did that, right? Things that ought to be shameful, dark secrets that hopefully we would put into the light and confess actually become trophies of glory in the world around us. And if you hear that and you think, well, that sounds like 2023, right? See that everywhere. Let me read a passage from Isaiah 520, thousands of years earlier. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Humanity has always been exchanging the glory of God for some pleasure, and we constantly are, are seeing that tension. So the crux of this really is who has the authority to define morality? And I love what Martin Lloyd-Jones says. He says, you will never make yourself feel that you are a sinner because there's a mechanism in you as a result of sin that will always be defending you against every accusation. We are all on very good terms with ourselves and we can always put up a good case for ourselves. And y'all have probably experienced that. I have. You sin, you struggle with something, you go, yeah, but here's why. And that's what's working in us. He goes on to say, even if we try to make ourselves feel that we are sinners, we will never do it. There's only one way to know that we are sinners. And that is to have some dim, glimmering conception of God. The only way to understand proper morality is to have a proper view of God, which is why I tend to be harsher when talking about sin and struggles with believers than I am non-believers, because it's like, we know who God is. We know the gift of life in Jesus. How can I expect someone who doesn't hold that to have the same moral code? Right? There's, there's something to be said about this, and it's it's important to remember that every human is, is pursuing these things, these desires, because we're all looking for satisfaction. Some of us just look for it in the wrong places. And that's where we see this third identifier, is that their minds are set on earthly things. That their, their gaze is set so close that it's gonna cause them to wonder rather than moving towards something. Paul is constantly reminding us to do things with our minds. Philippians 2 in that curve, he said, have the same mindset of Christ who laid down his life. Romans 12, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Philippians 4, we'll see in a couple of weeks, he's gonna give us a list of things and characteristics to think about. He'll say, use your mind, think about these things. When our hearts and our minds are set on earthly things, it is very difficult to live for anything that we can't see. Borderline impossible. And Paul knows that the Philippian church is walking into everyday situations where they're going to have to make this choice because they're gonna be around both types of people, those who are seeking Jesus and those who are seeking self-pleasure. When they go to their jobs, when they stroll through the market, all the time, and he's encouraging them, there will be two paths. Keep your eyes on Jesus. If you need, look at us and how we're doing it. We aren't immune to temptation. We cannot escape this world. We can't isolate ourselves from it. We have to choose Jesus daily, multiple times a day. Now, earlier I told you to hold on to what you hear when you think enemies of the cross of Christ. As we've gone through this list, some of that has probably been affirmed. Like, yep, that's what I was thinking, that's what I was thinking. Can I remind you and myself of a really good but a hard truth? It's Romans 5.10, and it says this. We were God's enemies. Right? This isn't some distant people. Like, this actually is us, but while we were God's enemies, that's when Christ chose to reconcile us. Enemies of God are anyone who in their heart declare, I need no one reigning over my life 
except myself. And this was our default, every single human. This is where we started, but also where we're prone to want to return. And it's only through the cross that we can move away from that path and experience true life in him. So when you think enemies, I want you to think of your previous self because what that is gonna remind you is that not all enemies of the cross of Christ are hostile. They're not all these angry people who are trying to come at you and take away your rights or whatever it may be. We villainize them. We create two camps and say bad and good. But this was all of us. Many are gentle, kind people whose minds and hearts are set on things that will fade away. So what do we do with that? I think the one, one of the things we have to constantly do is look at Christ. And I see so much of Christ in this verse. Please let me explain that, okay? When I look at the path that he followed, like notice that he took on destruction as his destiny. That was not his destiny, but that's what he took on. He set aside his appetite, right, his desires. He put the desires of others above himself. He set aside his glory to take on our shame. And his mind was so set on heavenly things that he actually came to earth and stepped in for us. Like, and this is who he came for, right? This is us, and this is why he stepped in. And so with that in view, wouldn't you say that anyone who attempts to please self, to keep our mind here, to change the moral code, that is a rejection of the cross because of the magnitude of what Christ has done. And I say all that to remind us that it gives us some insight into Paul's attitude as he's writing this. Notice the little part in the verse before, in verse 18, where he says, I tell you this again, even with tears, with weeping, with sadness. Right? There's, there's nothing wrong with us seeing people living in sin and making a divide in our minds. There are types of people who follow Jesus and those who don't. But what's the response? Is it pride, anger, accusation, war, debate? Or is it weeping, empathy, sacrifice, a push for us to live in a way that people might actually see the cross of Christ in us, flowing out of us. Paul writes with tears that people are being led to destruction because that was him. Not just him being led to destruction, but he was leading others. But he has experienced this work of justification that he's talked about, of Christ on the cross. He's experiencing this, this sanctification, this daily transformation where he's learning to live like Jesus with Jesus. And it's given him a longing for what is coming. And here, Paul contrasts people who have their minds set on earthly things with what I would assume would be people who have their minds set on heavenly things, right? That's what I expect to read. But notice the contrast. It says, but our citizenship is in heaven, which is a way deeper statement than just fix your eyes on eternal things. He's saying our identity is there. The Philippians would understand this. If you remember, this is a Roman colony. So they are Roman citizens, though they are living far away from Rome and they're under Rome's rule and regulations. So they would get this idea of our citizenship being somewhere else. It reminds me too of a moment I experienced in Boston a few years ago. Uh, Alex and I flew up there to meet some friends for a quick getaway and it happened to be why the Euro 2020 uh, football cup was being played. And it was in 2021 because it had gotten pushed back. But the final was England versus Italy. And so we sat in this pub watching this match as Italy won in PKs. And in the pub, it was cool. Like there were fans from both and there was a little bit of celebration. But we knew that there was a place in Boston called Little Italy. So we're like, we should go over there and see what's happening. 
Big mistake. Yet, fantastic decision. It was hard to get a dinner reservation, but the streets were shut down. People were celebrating. Like, it was incredible to be a part of that. And for a minute, I kind of felt Italian, right? I'm like, I could do this. No, and I realized I couldn't. But what struck me was that here we are in Boston, perhaps the most American city in America, right? You got the Red Sox. You got the New England Patriots, the Boston Tea Party, Paul Revere. I could go on and on. And yet, there's people living here whose identity is far more rooted in a different country altogether. But their attitude wasn't like, man, I guess we'll make it to Italy one day. Right now, we'll just rough it in Boston. No, they brought the Italian culture there. And they've invited people into it to get a taste of it, right? To get to experience it. That is the attitude that Paul is calling us to, that even though we live here, our true citizenship is elsewhere. It's somewhere else. And we see just a little bit here about what's gonna happen in end times, heaven, hell, rapture, all that, where we see Paul lay out that something's gonna happen with our bodies at Christ's second coming, that he will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. And in scripture, we see some familiar language that God uses to talk about what will happen after this world with bodies, with time, with space, with paradise. But there's so much reason to believe that it will transcend anything that we could ever understand or imagine. So what we do is we take this simple encouragement and we fix our eyes on where our citizenship is, right? But I want to bring attention in, and maybe I'm the only one in here who feels this, and that's okay if I am, but maybe you felt it. Often asked, why so much emphasis on this life? Let me explain, maybe a better way of asking that would be, if I've been justified by Christ, which has guaranteed me an eternal inheritance of full glorification, perfect body, perfect life, that I can do nothing to earn, why put so much emphasis on living for him now? Like, what is the point? And I think that question stems from a theology that many folks, probably especially in the Bible Belt, have fallen into without knowing it. It's this idea of escapism, that once we get our golden ticket to heaven by praying the correct phrase of words that we need to pray to secure a spot, then we're good to go, right? And everything doesn't really matter as much at that point. And while it's emotionally compelling and rooted in, a, in, in healthy theology, it misses the full biblical message of salvation. Because when all of our hopes are centered on this faraway land that hopefully has a mansion of gold for us, and then we step into this arena all in choir robes where we're all together, God's down there, and we just sing praises for eternity. Like, I love to sing, and that will be a glorious moment, but are we doing that forever? Like, I, maybe it's sinful for me to say that's not that compelling to me. Like, is that what God really has in store for heaven? A hope only set on a future escape from this earth to a far off place will leave us to experience a living hell here. Let me explain that. That is how we will see this place, that it's all going to hell in a handbasket anyways. So let's just get out of here as quick as we can. We are God's image bearers. Therefore, this place still has a ton of hope and a ton of value. And the church is not a group of people who comes together to remember that the world sucks, let's wait until heaven and go back to our mundane lives. Why are we here if that's our only view, right? This idea of just praying something to be good to go has foundation in a theological truth because we don't wanna slip into thinking we have to earn our way to heaven. 
but it can unintentionally lead us to spiritual apathy over time. And I think that's why a lot of the Bible Belt culture has been created. Because for years and years, we put an emphasis on praying a certain thing, and then the lack of discipleship and an invitation into spiritual growth, it's just not there. And please notice that Paul references none of that here. He says, my citizenship is there, but what does he say right after it? Not, I'm eager to get to heaven. He says, we eagerly await a savior from there. I want you to make sure that you understand that difference. Scripture is teaching us that our final destination is not some far off place in the sky, but it's here. And that God promises that he will make the earth new and above all of that, that he will come to reside with his people. So the opposite of enemies of the cross of Christ are those who are eagerly awaiting Christ's return here. Eagerly awaiting in the Greek is actually one word. It's too long. I don't understand it, so I'm not gonna try to pronounce it. But we often separate those things and think you can either be eager or you can wait. And Paul says, no, when it comes to Jesus, I'm both. Right? I'm waiting patiently to live in this life, but it is an eager anticipation of him returning. I think Paul thought there was a really good chance that Jesus was gonna come back in his lifetime. Which at first reaction, I'm like, dude, you missed by like 2,000 plus years. Maybe 10,000 years for all we know. I don't know, but you were way off. Then I realized, no, he was spot on because of his mindset that I will meet Jesus soon and he is coming back here. Practically think about it. If you were to know you were gonna die 20 years from now and go to heaven, how does that change the way you live this week? But if you knew that Christ was coming back next week, or even if you thought he was, he's coming back Sunday, how would that change the way that you live this week? That mindset of Christ returning here changes us and it gives us a new perspective on this earth. If you can get a vision for heaven, that's great because most people can't get their eyes past this earth. But if you can get a vision for heaven on earth, you'll start to see the way that Jesus wants to change us here and now. And that that's what he wants for us. God is not just a God of deliverance to get us out of here. He's a God of reformation, of restoration, of reconciliation, of redemption, right? Yes, there's a place, a presence that we don't know what it looks like or where it is called heaven and the presence of God, but our goal is not to flee from earth to escape to that. It's to see that heaven, that kingdom of God be lived out here, not in a dominionism theology where we're like, get Jesus back on the throne, let's take over the world, but in a way that we live and people see glimpses of the grace and goodness of God in everyday life, where they hear the good news and they see the good news of the hope lived out in us. Jesus himself wanted that in his prayer, his most famous prayer, thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. So instead of just longing for some far off place, we learn to speak heaven's language. When our minds are set on heavenly things, we talk about them out of our heart, the mouth speaks. This is why Paul says it's better for him to actually stay on this earth because God's redemption on the earth isn't done yet in his lifetime and it's not done yet now. You and I do have a responsibility on this journey, but it's not to secure our own spot in heaven. It's to participate in the reconciliation process that Christ has invited us into, to be, as scripture calls us, Christ's ambassadors, given the ministry of reconciliation. Redemption in our hearts but also in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our cities. And when we remember that Christ will come back here, it reminds us that our hope is not in a place, but it's in a person. And to say that bluntly, 
The goal of being a Christian is not a place called heaven. It's life with a person called Jesus because we don't even know what heaven will look like or be like, but we know exactly what Jesus is like. And I think that's why Paul is framing all this up and then he goes into chapter four. He didn't have chapters, so I'm just stealing this from Mark next week. But he goes into this and he says, stand firm. Everything I've just told you, stand firm. Stand firm in the hope that we have. Yes, it's a faraway place, but stand firm now. You are my joy. You are my crown. I've, I've worked so hard to give this truth to you. Now take it and stand firm. When we have this vision, the question is, why wouldn't we want to live for a little bit of a glimpse of heaven now? If oneness is what we will experience with all God's people, why wouldn't we pursue that and reconciliation now? If freedom from sin is a guarantee, why wouldn't we want a taste of that now? Not escape from the world but an engagement in it, and every day opening the gift of God's grace to share with those around us as we follow him. God once walked amongst his people, and he promises that he will do it again, and that is what we eagerly await with joyful anticipation, which is, it causes us to want to celebrate, to proclaim his goodness, that one day we will receive new bodies without sin, Every tear will be wiped away and all authority will be under Jesus' feet as he reigns on this earth. That's good news. And so this morning, we get to experience a little bit of a taste, a vision of that in the heart of two individuals through baptism. So why don't y'all go ahead and come on out. And I get so jacked up for baptisms, I'm just gonna be honest, because what we're seeing here is not just a dunking underwater. It's someone proclaiming what we've just talked about, that there's an eternal hope that has secured a desire for me to want to follow Jesus here and now. There's a reason that when we baptize here, we, we don't say buried with Christ in baptism and raised to secure a seat in heaven, right? We say raised to walk in new life here today. So we're gonna celebrate with Abby and with Megan this morning. Good morning. My name is Katie Wilson, and I am one of the leaders who has the distinct honor and privilege of hanging out with Abby Curtis here every week and with these really cool 12th grade girls um, up here on the stage. Uh, I would say, as we're all kind of gathering, uh, that our group really prides ourselves on having a strong culture of honesty and vulnerability in our discussions with one another um, and in encouraging each other in the truth of the scriptures as we have those discussions. Um, and someone in our group who has been a shining star in terms of setting that culture and leading out in that way is Abby Curtis. Um, she's wise beyond her years uh, when it comes to her understanding of scripture and who God is, and that comes out in our discussions at Cell Group on a weekly basis. But she's also one of the very first um, to share the things that she's going through during Cell Group, whether that's something joyful that she's experiencing and how she's seeing God in that, or whether that's periods of darkness or loneliness that she's walking in and wants encouragement from our community in that. A couple of weeks ago, she was uh, sharing her story with us at Cell Group, and she graciously walked all of us through all of these different, even as a senior in high school, all of these different seasons of life that she's already walked through, um, whether those were mountaintops or whether those were periods of, or valleys of prolonged sadness um, or darkness where she's walked. Um, and what really struck me about her story is that in all of these different seasons, especially where she's felt far from the Lord, she's continued to fight to find her way back to him and let him draw her back in. 
And it made me think a little bit of in Joshua 1, when God tells Joshua to be strong and courageous. Um, He's about to lead all of the Israelites into the promised land. They've been waiting for so long um, to be able to be in this land. Um, And now it's finally time, but it's in front of them, and it's scary. It's going to be tough. It's going to be challenging. And so God's reminding Joshua in that moment um, that no matter what's coming next, um, you know that I'm faithful to my promises, and so you can walk into it confidently and have strength and courage as you do. And I see that godly strength and courage in Abby. So, Abby, thank you for sharing your strength and courage with me, with our community, with your friends um, and family. We see Jesus more clearly um, because you do that as we walk alongside you. And thank you for channeling that strength and courage um, to step out in obedience and be baptized in front of all of these people (laughs) here today. Um, It truly is a testament as somebody who's walked with you of the woman that God has made you to be. And so it's all of our prayer today as you kind of take this step and then walk forward that you would continue to be strong and courageous as you meet new seasons, whether they're ups or downs. Um, and continue to be drawn back in by him. We love you, um, we're proud of you, and we're cheering you on. So, Abby, today you bear witness to this entire congregation, your friends, family, um, that you believe that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he died for your sins and paid the penalty for them, and that through that acceptance, you are saved. Is that true? Yes. Okay. Buried with Christ in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life. And I am one of six cell group leaders for the Bentonville 10th grade girls. And this is Megan. She joined our group about a year and a half ago. Um, And it's been such a joy and such an honor to watch her grow in her relationship with the Lord and watch her grow in her relationships with our cell group. Um, She brings so much um, courage and fun and joy and love to our group. And um, we're so excited for her today. Whenever Megan told me that she wanted to get baptized, um, it was a couple weeks ago, and she was like, I really want to get baptized, and I asked her why, and she said she wanted to make it public in front of her church body, and she wanted to make it public in front of her family and her friends and cell group, and so, Megan, we get to do just that today. Um, You get to publicly declare your life to God, Um, and so we're so excited for you, and something I want you to always remember is to trust in his goodness, to rely on his grace, and to glorify his name every day of your life. Go ahead and take a seat. Um, and church, if, if you don't mind, will y'all please stand? 
And um, we'll celebrate. We'll celebrate in just a moment. Megan, is it your testimony that you know Jesus, you love Him, and He's rescued you from sin and death and separation uh, to walk into new relationship with Him? Yes. Amazing. Then I baptize you, my sister, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, buried with Christ in baptism, raised to walk in new life. <laughs> Let's celebrate together.
If any of you are new, we have a newcomers gathering in the building to your left in the FSM building and would love to meet you and get to know you. Also, if you would like prayer, we have our prayer team up here in the front and they would love to get to pray, for, to pray with you and for you. And as we go out today, I wanna read this passage over us. It says, now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us 
and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace. Comfort our hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Now go out this week in that confidence.